On this episode of the London Life Scene, we talk with Dr. Andrew Hollingsworth about social Trinitarianism. So we'll cover all sorts of topics like just what does it mean to be a social Trinitarian? Is there such a thing as a mere social Trinitarianism? And what are the most common versions of it? Which ones does he think are most problematic or most promising? What are the eternal relations of origin? And why does the eternal relations of origin require things like impassibility, immutability, and timelessness, and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about serious thinking, we mean thinking that is virtuous with things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Uh, we think too often, uh, you can thinkers, especially on the internet, who like to listen to podcasts, fall off onto e- either one of the sides of being too critical, where they don't have any sort of like interest, actual interest, uh, genuine interest in what other people are thinking and saying, or um, they basically have no ability. Uh, to think critically at all. It's just everything's good and happy, happy, hunky-dory, whatever whatever the terminology is. We want to sort of hopefully encourage an intellectual culture that prizes both those things, uh, that we think critically, but we, we do it with a spirit of charity and interest in the other person. I think that's part of what it means to love other people is to be as interested in their arguments as possible. You may disagree, but fundamentally you're actually caring about them as a person. Now, let's go ahead and get into the interview today. So I've got joined with me Dr. Andrew Hollingsworth. If you are a loyal, regular listener, you know that we talked about um, Wolfhart Pannenberg. I don't know. It's been probably two years ago or something now. You can, I'll link to it in the show notes. You can go check it out um, and listen to that. Since then, Andrew has published about 500 peer-reviewed papers. Um, so there's a lot of material that we'll have to cover in this episode. No, I'm kidding, but he really has published a significant number of papers. Um, we're going to be talking about social Trinitarianism and related uh, doctrines today. And when we discussed about talking about this, he emailed me, like, here's some of my recent papers on it. And there were literally like eight papers. So um, lots of material that we could cover. Uh, we could probably talk for six hours or more on these things. But we're going to focus on primarily one of his recent ones on what he calls mere social Trinitarianism. So this should be interesting. I imagine a lot of our listeners are going to recoil at social Trinitarianism. And that's fine. What I ask you to do is to uh, listen out and hear why it is he wants to say things the way he says them. And we can ask some questions and have a good conversation. You know, we've every time... uh, I think our listener base is probably more on the classical Protestant side for the most part. Now, I mean, that's where I am. And there's always, every time we have somebody who is like critiquing that sort of stuff, people like freak out and say, you know, don't listen to it or whatever. But that's not, that's the point, the point of the episode point of our podcast is to learn and hear about everything. So just be cool. Think about, you know, you're going to a coffee shop and you're hanging out and talking. So let, let's, let's get into this. Andrew, remind me where are you at? Um, what do you teach? How'd you get interested in thinking about Trinitarianism and related topics? Yeah, I'm glad to be back on the show, Jordan. And, um, 
For those of y'all who may not know, Jordan and I have been friends for a little while now. We even co-authored a paper together, and uh, it's funny when our paper came out, some of you may have seen it, I took to Twitter and said, when a classical theist and a neoclassical theist walk into a bar, out comes a paper for Philosophia Christi. <laughs> but anyway, no, but in all seriousness, I am an assistant professor of theology and Christian philosophy at Bruton Parker College and our Divinity School Temple Baptist Theological Seminary. Um... I teach courses in Christian, as my title says, Christian philosophy and systematic theology, but I teach other things too. For example, I, I'm currently teaching at the undergraduate level, Introduction to Biblical Worldview. I get to teach that class every semester, and I love it. I teach courses on world religions, the historical Jesus, all the undergraduate, but the graduate, mostly systematic theology, and electives in theological method, doctrine of God, and the Trinity. As to how I got interested in the Trinity... Uh, my question is, how do you not get interested in the Trinity? I mean, if you're a Christian and you believe this, this is literally one of the most fascinating things that we believe. How do we believe that there is exactly one God and that there are precisely three persons properly called God? Like, how, like that is a fascinating claim, but yet there's only one God. There's not three gods. God is three persons, not one person. And it's, it's a fascinating question. So if you're a Christian and you don't think that's interesting, um, you should pray more. But I got into this because I spent most of my master's and doctoral degree time studying theological method and methodology and doing research there. And after about seven years of that, I decided, okay, I think I'm done talking about doing theology. I'm, I'm tired of talking about talking about theology. Let's get in and actually do something. And what cooler place to start than the doctrine of God, right? I mean, that's kind of because if God doesn't exist, then, then our faith is in vain. So let's talk about God because we do believe he exists. We believe this God has revealed himself of Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ and in history and in scripture. Let's get to know that God. And, uh, and I think that's just a natural outworking and following, follow, falling out of uh, what David Clark describes as the purpose of theology, and that is to know and love God. So that's yeah. how. That's good stuff. So as we think uh, starting out baseline of social Trinitarianism, I imagine that uh, it, in some ways it reminds me of sort of like the, the I don't know, popular level free will debate where, you know, if, if you either believe in free will or you don't and like it's really simple, cut and dried, it's bad, you're the good, good team or the bad team. But it seems that social Trinitarianism also is victim to this sort of like really simple black and white dichotomy. So maybe just walk me through how you would define social Trinitarianism, and then we can sort of get into the the idea of having a mere social Trinitarianism where you can explain that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, George. You know, I never thought about that, but you're right. You know, when I was in college and at the more popular level, and I would ask people, what's Calvinism? I would ask different Calvinists what that is, and they each gave me a different answer. <laughs> so, the, so even Calvinists differed amongst themselves about what it is they believe. So I I went to the source. I got a copy of the Institutes and read, and that's what I found out what Calvin actually taught and believed. And I think we should do the same with social Trinitarianism. So, Because as many of you may know, there's a plethora of definitions out there. Like Different pe people mean different things by that term. And... Uh, and it's kind of annoying. So it's one of the best things to do is to go to the literature and do that. But uh, this is kind of the problem the term social Trinitarianism suffers, is that for almost any social Trinitarian you ask, what is social Trinitarianism, you're going to get a different definition. So if you ask four social Trinitarians, what is that? You're probably going to get four different definitions of what it is. 
Um, this is a little bit pricier book, but I highly recommend this book. It is an incredible book. I have a review of it published in the Journal of Analytic Theology by Thomas McCall uh, on analytic Christology and the theological interpretation of the New Testament. And he has this wonderful chapter in the book where he discusses social Trinitarianism and, seven, and six different ways that that term gets used. And he even confesses there, there's most likely more, but there are at least these six ways. And then he provides a seventh one of what he calls real social Trinitarianism. We can talk about that in a minute. But just to give you some of the ideas of the way the term is used, some there is a socio-political advocacy view, which is Christian theology that seeks to draw socio-political and ethical implications from the doctrine of the Trinity. So like Miroslav Volf and others who want to say like the Trinity is our social agenda. Um, Jürgen Moltmann did a lot of this as well. Then there is some try to understand it in terms of it's just Eastern Trinitarianism, and they set up this, this story, this narrative of Eastern versus Western theology. It says that the, Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity that was held by the major pro-Nicene Greek-speaking theologians of the 4th century, in particular the Cappadocians, that is social Trinitarianism, or at least some kind of proto-social Trinitarianism. That's a false story, by the way. You shouldn't believe it. Uh, and then the next one is a, is a more common view. It's the social analogy view, and that's just any kind of Trinitarian doctrine that uses the analogy of like a little community, a family, or a society. So like, for example, Gregory of Nyssa gave this example of how Peter, John, and James are three persons, but each have the same kind of nature. Uh, Nyssa is not a social Trinitarian by any stretch, but he does use a social analogy to kind of make a point. So some people think anyone that uses that analogy is a social Trinitarian. The next one is uh, called the modern person's view, and that's any kind of Trinity doctrine that makes a positive use out of the modern notion of personhood, and they contrast that with the, with the so-called traditional view. We're going to talk more about that in a minute, so I won't go into the details. Um, but to kind of sum it up, so like the modern idea of a trinity is like the of a person's like a self, like a center of consciousness, will, action, and love. Supposedly that is, or allegedly that is different than the traditional view. But as we'll discuss in a minute, there are several historical theologians, classical theologians, who say that's just not the case. Then we have the next one, which is like intra-Trinitarian love view that McCall describes for us, and that's any Trinity doctrine, according to which the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit genuinely love one another as a distinct other. So there seems to be some kind of I-thou relation between the person so they can love each other. And then the last view McCall mentions is called the distinct agency view, which just posits that... Uh, the, the, each person in the Trinity is a distinct agent. And then McCall talks about how all of these views have problems, so he posits a seventh, what he calls real social Trinitarianism. And uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that right now, Jordan, if you want to get go on. or So I imagine from the taxonomy you've given so far, like the, the, like the first one about like using it as like our sort of social program, that doesn't seem to be super popular nowadays. Mm -mm. Um, especially, you know, Wayne Grudem and company who kind of like ruined the social aspect of like, let's use the Trinity as our sort of like model of how we just do life. So no, when, when, when that happens, everybody doesn't like it anymore. So that's discarded. The second one, um, I don't remember what the second one was, but I remember thinking versus Western story. Yeah. So I, I don't feel like that one's very common either. It seems to me the most common one from what you listed 
is probably when th- people think social Trinitarianism, they think sort of like the modern notion of personhood, distinct consciousness, distinct discrete will. Um, so when it comes to real social Trinitarianism, remind me how McCall defines that. Yeah, so his this is a little bit longer definition, but these are straight from his book. He listed out as a conjunction of three propositions. He says the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are of one essence, but are not numerically the same substance. Rather, the divine persons are consubstantial only in the sense that they share the divine nature in common. Furthermore, this sharing of a common nature, which can be understood in a fairly straightforward sense via the social analogy, in which Peter, James, and John share human nature. That's proposition one. Number two is properly understood. The central claim of monotheism, that there is but one God, is to be understood as the claim that there is one divine nature, not as the claim that there is exactly one divine substance. And proposition three, the divine persons must each be in full possession of the divine nature, and in some particular relation are, to one another for Trinitarianism to count as monotheism. And he has in parentheses where the usual candidates for R are being members of the same kind, the only members of the divine family, the only members of a necessarily existent community, enjoying perfect love and harmony of will and being necessarily interdependent. Now, I want to go ahead and show my cards real quick. I don't necessarily buy that for real social Trinitarianism, because I think that's committing a lot of social Trinitarians to way more than they're going to want to bite off. Because I just don't see how that, what he's described is not tritheism personally. Yeah. Um, I think it's that second claim that seems to get at the idea of try. If if you have three substances, that seems like, I don't know how you could theoretically get away. Well, by this definition, so I'm thinking people like William Lane Craig and William Hasker, they're not social Trinitarian, real social Trinitarians on this view. Because yeah. each of them are going to say, no, the divine essence. And Craig is going to say that the divine essence, like God, is just a single concrete soul with three sets of cognitive faculties, each sufficient for a person. So there's only one trope of divinity, if you will. And Hasker explicitly says that, that we need to understand the divine substance as a single trope of concrete existence of divinity. So I, it's not like some abstract thing that's being instantiated or exemplified by each person. Um so yeah, I, there's, there's there's several social trinitarians who who seem obviously like social trinitarians. Um, you know, I myself consider myself a kind of social trin. I would not be committed to most of what McCall has has maybe the maybe the relation R one number three, but numbers one and two. I, I take issue with those things. So, so why do you take issue? I, I've thought of number one as just sort of like a psychological analogy that you find pretty consistently where, or I guess a social analogy, I'm thinking of somebody like Augustine who uses sort of, I don't remember what the mind and whatever else he uses to sort of give an analogy of what the Trinity is like. Yeah. Is that, is that thinner than what he's trying to put forward there? I don't know. It's that first sentence in our, in the first proposition that throws me off and it sounds like what he's after in number two. And that is okay. the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are of one essence, but are not numerically the same substance. Okay. Got it. So, Maybe that is the case, um, but even then we have to, even then that's going to require some teasing out. So I, I, I don't know, may, maybe I'm fine with that, but that sounds a lot like what he's after in number two, when he says that there is only a single divine nature, but there is not a single divine substance. So I, yeah, so I, I, I don't know that I even want to go that far, because I'm, I'm much more in that camp of like, 
Craig, of Hasker, and others who want to say, no, there's only a single trope of divinity, like a concrete, it's, it's not a kind, it's just a, a concrete instance of it, and that is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, that makes sense. Now, whether it const- now whether you want to take the Haskarian approach and say that this divine essence constitutes each of the persons, or you want to take Craig's approach to say each of the persons is a is an improper part of God because he doesn't want to call them proper parts. That's fine. That's a different discussion. But I, I wouldn't want to say. But in that case, they're all three persons. I would say they are the numerically same substance in that case. So you've sort of tried to describe or create your own definition of what would capture everybody who would be considered potentially a social Trinitarianism and called it mere social Trinitarianism. So maybe walk me through how you've thought about that and the way you've described it. Right. So for my definition of mere social Trinitarianism, I just take it as that fourth view we talked about, which is... Social Trinitarianism that has what's considered a modern person's view of personhood of the persons as a, as a three-selves Trinitarianism. So my definition uh, is Trinitarian theology that claims that the divine persons are distinct centers of consciousness, will, action, and love. That is minimal. Now, maybe you want to go the route and, ha- and have this full-blown, what McCall calls real social Trinitarianism from that. Go for it. I don't think you should, but do what you want. But that is a minimal claim. And the reason I arrived at this is because it seemed obvious to me that what McCall calls real social Trinitarianism packs in way too much than what most are going to want to take. But when I looked at the other six options, it seems that if you want five of these six options to get off the ground, you need number four. And here's, and here's the thing, too. Sociopolitical advocacy, I don't understand why that makes why, – well, first off, I'm not clear why that – qualifies as social Trinitarianism. I know that thinkers claim that, but I mean, theoretically, you could be a Latin Trinitarian and say, oh, well, the way that the Father begets the Son and they have this mutually binding love that is the Holy Spirit, for example, that proceeds from both of them. You could say, oh, well, that's our model for the family. You could you could still take that case with different Trinitarian models. It's not unique. It's not just a problem for social Trinitarianism. The Number two, the Eastern versus Western story, what, you know, just brilliant historical theologians like Louis Aries and Khaled Anatolio, Stephen Holmes, and just the list goes on of historical theologians, Sarah Coakley, who have shown this this narrative is just false. That there really is no, though they may use slightly different analogies and terminology at times to describe the Trinity, there is no real material difference between the East and the West and the patristic period on the on this. So neither Western or Eastern could qualify as what we seem to be after with social Trinitarianism. Uh, the social analogy, I know lots of social Trinitarians that just don't like the social analogy. I don't like the social analogy. I don't use the social analogy. I can give you a whole list of social Trinitarians who don't like that analogy. So that's not going to work. Um, and then the intra-Trinitarian love view. Well, even Latin Trinitarians want to say, yeah, the Father really loves the Son. They're not going to deny that. Or sorry, classical Trinitarian, whatever you call it. Same for if you're a material constitutionalist or a relative identity theorist or a monarchical model. Like they all want to say, yeah, there are real genuine loving relations. One of the few theologians I've seen that says, no, there is no genuine I-thou relation of love between the persons is Keith Ward uh, in his Christ and Cosmos. Uh, but McCall has even 
he's leveled some pretty serious criticisms against how that's even Trinitarianism, what he's describing. It's definitely not consistent, especially when you look at classical medieval thinkers like Richard of St. Victor, who literally claim that the Father loves the Son into existence and the Father and Son love the Spirit into existence, you know. And then the distinct agency view, I used to think I liked this one, but I just don't know what an agent who acts, at least remotely, intentionally, is, if not a person. So it seems like to me, like even you could you could be a class or a Latin Trinitarian and say, well, yeah, the, the persons are distinct agents, but that doesn't mean they're distinct centers of consciousness. So if, if, if even a Latin Trinitarian could claim three distinct agents of God, then that's not going to be sufficient to demarcate social Trinitarianism from that view. It's not going to go far enough. So it seems to me that the best option for a mere social Trinitarian, something that all social Trinitarians should be able to get on board on, is this idea of the modern person. Now, a lot of them, like uh, I know, for example, Colin Gunton didn't like calling it the modern person view. Uh, get over it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but like... <laughs> I'm not convinced that this is a, a uniquely modern idea, and you've even got classical thinkers like, um, I think you pronounce his name, I don't know if it's Giles Emery or Gilles Emery. He says this, uh, Khaled Anatolio says this, that really what we're calling a modern sense of personhood is just an outworking of the classical view that we get in Boethius. It's nothing really that's truly separated or, or distinct from what the classical thinkers would have had in mind. So Anatolios and Emory both make those comments, and McCall notes it in his analytic Christology book as well. Yeah, I guess, I don't know. I'll have to think about it, because um, my intuition is to say, well, there, there's like an additional claim that you have to make. I, I don't like, if, if I brought to them the modern sense of personhood, I don't think they'd be like, well, what are you guys talking about? I have a, I have no concept for this. But yeah. it seems like there would need to be like additional claims yeah. built into what they're talking about for well, that to... to to work. Yeah, maybe maybe it's something like you know what um like Scott Williams is doing with his Latin yeah. social trinitarianism. Maybe it's something like that. That's fine. Now I still don't think don't don't hear me say this that the modern idea of personhood that I'm talking about. Don't hear me say that is the view of the patristics. I'm not saying that yeah. because all of them would have thrown up at the idea of there being distinct centers of will in God. They would have all puked at just hearing that, right? <laughs> They might have thrown rocks at you. I mean, so, I mean, I'm not trying to say that. But but McCall, Anatolios, Emery, and others, they, they say, hey, I think there's been too much of an argument pushed to say the modern idea of personhood is totally different from the ancient sense. Yeah. And so, so when people who are pushing for the classical views and its retrieval, are when they're on board with it, I'm like, maybe there's something to this, and it's not just us crazy and people who are you know, imbibing the enlightenment or whatever you want to throw at us. Yeah, so the idea would be it, it's not sufficient just to say, look, you're using the modern notion of personhood, therefore you're wrong. You have, you have to show your homework, do your homework um, right. in front of the teacher a little bit to say, Here, here's why I think this creates, generates a problem, so I'm going to end up denying this aspect mm -hmm. of the modern notion of personhood or whatever. And I, and I forgot to mention this, so I've given my definition of what a mere social Trinitarian is, Trinitarianism is. I also cash that out in four distinct propositions that I think are helpful for us to think about. So I say there is one divine essence uh, that is three distinct divine persons. I do not commit one way or another to whether it's a concrete essence or an abstract essence. I'm going to let, I think it should be concrete. 
but some are not going to want to take that view and they have the right to be wrong. Each divine person has the one or is the divine. I don't want to say is that they have the divine, the one divine essence. Each divine person is a distinct center of consciousness, will, action, and love. And the last one, each divine person enjoys some relation R to the other two divine persons, such that the three divine persons are the single instance of the essence of divinity. So that's all. I mean, it's a very minimalist claim because, I'm again, I'm just trying to define what's something every social Trinitarian could get on board with. Yeah. Well, that's super helpful. And I, I think that gives a lot of clarity. I mean, that's obviously one of the benefits of doing sort of like theology in the analytic mode to where it becomes very clear what you are affirming, what you're not affirming, so that you can get at the heart of the issue of saying, oh, that's that's the point that I disagree on. Let's Let's discuss and debate that rather than discussing and debating stuff that's completely off the right. reservation as far mm -hmm. as importance. And this is and this is what got me to write this paper was I won't name the author of the book. If you're interested in who the author of the book is, I have a forthcoming paper coming out. Uh, you can you can just read that paper and it tells you who that author is. But this book has this chapter in it where it's just very anti social trinitarianism. That's fine. I don't care if people are anti social trinitarianism. Just make good arguments. But this book was trying to say that social Trinitarians, and this is in the definition in the glossary of the book, it commits you to almost all six of those things McCall listed out as distinct views. And, and again, this is the problem as I'm like, like the social agenda, that seemed to be the one of the main ones this author got hung up on. And I'm like, well, Keith Yandel says nothing about a social agenda. William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland say nothing. William Hasker doesn't. Um, Wolfhart Pannenberg says nothing about a social agenda. Richard Swinburne says nothing about a social agenda. It's like clearly this, so, so this was a kind of straw man argument that's built out. And so by attacking that, therefore all social Trinitarians are wrong. I'm like, well, no, you, you've, you've attacked one particular kind of it. Right. No, that, that's good. You haven't gotten to the, the meat of it. And that's why something like a near social Trinitarianism is, is so important. So if we are going to make arguments against views that need to be criticized, and there are views, maybe social Trinitarianism is one of these views that needs to be criticized, but let's make sure that we're criticizing it at, its, at the very core of what it is, something that we can actually be intelligible and accurate when we're talking about it. So that way our criticisms land. We're never going to make progress in loving our neighbor as ourself and growing as a church if we just continue to straw man and attack caricatures of the positions that don't fit with what we like. No, that, that, I mean, that's a good word. I, I can think of numerous examples um, where this is the case. You know, it happens all the time in sort of like Calvinist, Arminianist, Arminian deba debates where you end up like loading up all of the all the various views into like one lump sum and then saying that's what Arminians believe or that's what Calvinists believe or that's what classical theists believe when in reality there's like six, seven, eight discrete options and a bunch of them like not like they're knowledgeably saying, no, I disagree with that. And that's why I'm taking a different view on this. So critiquing me for these eight things when I only hold the two of them is, it's kind of a, a, a mm -hmm. fool's errand. Right. So, like in the other book, aspect, go ahead. In that book, when that author makes his claim, he just goes on and on about the social agenda. I'm like, all right, but that doesn't land for over half of the social Trinitarians writing today. You haven't yeah. done anything to defeat their position. That's right. So the other aspect of this paper you've worked out is on the eternal relations of origin and why you think that there's only one model of God that can actually affirm uh, that. 
I found this super interesting. So I'd love to just, number one, I guess, walk me through how you think of the eternal relations of origin. And then we can sort of talk through some of the implications of that. Right. So the eternal relations of origin, some of you may not know, I call this in the paper the Darrow. Darrow just means doctrine of eternal relations of origin. So if you hear me use that term in this interview, that's what I mean. Uh, so the Darrow is essential to the patristic doctrine of the Trinity. It is the, the pro-Nicene doctrine of the Trinity in many ways. It's how they explain God as a single concrete substance that is distinctly three persons and how that substance is communicated between the persons. Um, so typically this doctrine is just the claim that the Father eternally begets or generates the Son and then that the Father with or through the Son, depending on your Eastern or Western flavor, aspirates the Holy Spirit. Now, these are, now we say that, and that might be kind of unclear. Okay, so what do you mean by begets or generates or spirates? Well, the fathers are kind of hesitate to say exactly what distinguishes the two. Now, in the medieval thinkers, you have several who want to say, well, if it's not the Son with the Father spirating the Spirit, well, then there's absolutely no difference in the relations between the the father the son's generation and the spirit spiration if it's just the father, so they didn't like that. So they said in that case the spirit and the son would be indistinguishable. Uh, but one thing that is clear when you read the the patristic theologians, these relations are timeless. They are atemporal. Whatever it happens because God is timeless, and these are causal relations. And I mean this in the sense of the Greek atia, which is picked up by Aristotle who defines four different kinds of atia or causes. And in the way that these contexts, all of the, the church fathers use this idea, it's in the idea of an efficient causation, this idea of production or a productive causation. So we can boil down the doctrine of the eternal relations of origin in five propositions. The Father eternally begets the Son. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Father with or through the Son, eternally spirate the Spirit, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father with or through the Son. And five, the Father alone is an originate and uncaused. And so that is the basic idea of the eternal relations of origin. Uh, some of you may have heard, this term may be new to you, you may have heard the doctrine of the eternal processions. It often goes by that. But as Scott Williams has recently helpfully pointed out to me, that that might already show some kind of bias towards a Western way of thinking about the Trinity and exclude certain Eastern thinkers, that it's better for us to talk about the eternal relations of origin. So that's why uh, we can exclude all the Eastern people. That's fine. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. Um, so I guess I, I want to ask a little bit of question on the, the causal stuff. So I know I, I mess, messaged you about this earlier. Yeah. Because uh, I imagine a lot of people are going to look at that and say, I, I, I'm uncomfortable with that terminology to load that in there. Mm -hmm. And I guess my intuition is you can probably you can find that terminology there in the figure. So you, you cited the two Gregories there. Mm -hmm. I went and looked up the one uh, from On God and Christ because I have that one on my shelf. And I found the page. And he does use that causal terminology. Um, so, but... My my thought is a lot of us today think of causation in a pretty simple like you push I pull like I push the rock down the the the. That's in a plural sense. Yeah, and 
So it seems to me Gregory and others are using it in a very stripped down sense to where it's almost unrecognizable to how we would think of causation. To, to some extent. So the example that they love to give is that in the same way that the sun causes its light, but is never without its light. So the father begets the sun or the way, the same way that a fire produces heat, but it's never without its heat. So the father produces the sun. They use this language um, and it's not just the Cappadocians. I've, I've even taken the liberty to pull additional quotes because this is all in the medievals. Hilary of Poitiers uses this causal language as well. It's an origin. Well, according to Kevin Giles, it's an origin. I spent hours this week trying to track down where in On First Principles Giles um, references that. I couldn't find it, so I thought, well, maybe my English translation uh, doesn't translate. So I even had um, Hunter from the, I'm blanking on his last name, but Hunter from the London Lyceum, Slack, and who's the, one of the book review editors, Heinzman. He sent me a digital searchable copy of the Latin and Greek of origin so I could look for either the Greek adia or the Latin causa. And causa does a, appear a couple of times in that passage in origin, but it has nothing to do with the father's generation of the son. So I'm not sure where in the, on the first principles that supposedly is. But I also know that John of Damascus explicitly uses the language of causation. It's also in Anselm of Canterbury and Peter Lombard. I think Richard of St. Victor uses it. Thomas Aquinas does not. He wants to say that the Father is the principle of the Son because he has this intuition that causes temporally, always temporally precede their effects, and he wants to avoid that. Uh, but as pa, I don't know how you say his name, Pasch or Paash says in his book on divine production produ, production in the 13th century. Um, but even though or, uh, Thomas wants to say that it's he's the principle, what Thomas still wants and is after is that the Father is still somehow producing the Son. But this is why the Cappadocians and all the church husbands say, yes, it is a cause, but it is not a temporally prior cause. Yes, the Father is causally prior. That does not entail that he is chronologically prior. And there's even a modern-day example I can give to help think about this. If I were to die right now, drop dead, some people might be happy, but I hope not. But if I drop dead right now, um, not after I die, but absolutely simultaneous with my death, my wife becomes a widow. And my death causes her to be a widow. Um, so my death is causally prior to her being a widow, but it's not like I died before she became a widow. No, I died. My death coincides with her becoming a widow. So that's in the sense of understanding it is simultaneous within time. So if we can conceive of it like that and conceive of, and some of the, some of the early church fathers love to try and cash out the idea of timelessness and this idea of this just eternal now. So, um, you can probably try and translate, or at least analogically translate, the idea of simultaneous causation to a timeless causation. So that's just what they're after. Um, okay. But if anyone wants, I actually have a little document of quotations from the patristics where they use this causal language in this productive sense that you could always drop as part in the, uh, the bio or the words or whatever for the episode or just put on your website, whatever. I have some of those quotations should some people want. Cool. Yeah, I guess... My my gut feeling when it comes to that is while maybe they used that language, that language nowadays communicates things that would be uh, vehemently denied by them, and therefore it would be better to use a different word just for the sake of clarity. Um, sure. But I don't know what that word would be without yeah, the death of a thousand qualifications. Right. So um, some people have thought, have tried to push back also and said, well, yeah, well, that may have been those theologians' ideas, but that doesn't mean that's what's in view of the Nicene Creed when it says 
Well, when we consider the role that Gregor Nazianzus had at the council as its presiding bishop, and he kind of was in charge of it, and the influence he had, that was the, the Bealey quotation you had asked me about before. That's what that was in reference to. It, the evidence points to it looks like the, the theology of, Nicene, of the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed is just a direct reflection of Nazianzen's theology. Yeah, no, I and agree so, with that. Yeah, so but now I don't, again, I'm with you. Um, I don't know what else to call them except, I mean, but if we're going to have, you know, a bunch of qualifiers on whatever that term is, well, let's just stick with cause. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying. So you make the argument that this doctrine requires things like impassibility, immu- immutability, yeah. and timelessness. Right. Um, and so that does seem to limit your theological options significantly mm-hmm. if you want to do that. Now, oh, for yeah. me, I'd say, okay, so what? That's not a cost because I already affirm impassibility, immutability, and timelessness. Right. Um, but walk me through first why you think it does commit you to those three doctrines. Yeah, so, well, I'm going to be drawing off of my friend Ryan, Ryan Mullins' work on this. Uh, so first off, none of, the, none of the church fathers, nobody prior to maybe the 20th century ever tried to understand the eternal relations of origin in temporally eternal terms. Some people tried to make the case that origin has in mind an, ever, an everlasting beginning, uh, that's, that's not true. It's, it's a timeless beginning for origin. I don't, I don't see how we, some people get that. Um, but the reason I'm talking about this is because there are some social Trinitarians writing today who want to be social Trinitarians. They want to stay committed to that, but they also want to have this doctrine of the eternal relations of origin. And they're going to limit themselves to what kinds of models of God and the divine attributes they have. So if you affirm that God is timeless, then you are already affirming that he is impassable and immutable. Uh, in the words that Ryan's used, even on your podcast before, if God is timeless, you get immutability and impassibility for free. That just comes with it. Uh, because if something is timeless, it cannot go any kind of change, intrinsic or extrinsic. Uh, if it's timeless, it's not going to be able to be affected by anything outside of itself um, because that would move it from being in one state to another state, which would be a change, which would make it temporal. So you, you're going to get those doctrines for free. So, And I think this is important, and I, and I make a qualifier in the paper that this is the classical doctrine of the eternal relations of origin that I'm talking about. Some people like William Hasker and Swinburne try to have this idea that at each and every moment of time, uh, the Father is causing the Son and the Spirit. Um, I have arguments in this paper and in another paper that's forthcoming with faith and philosophy that shows why I don't think that works. And yes, you can have some kind of eternal relations of origin and have God temporally eternal. But at this point, we've reworked the doctrine to such an extent it's not recognizable as the classical doctrine. So it's not clear to me at all, like in what sense we have maintained really anything except terminology. So I think that's important why. Um, so if you are a social Trinitarian, um, but here's the thing that some, some think, okay, well, if you've got timelessness, you've got immutability, you've got impassibility, why not go ahead and just say you need simplicity too? Great question. Social Trinitarianism is not compatible with divine simplicity. It's just not. Especially if you want to come, if you're wanting to cash out the person's relations to the essence in the way the classical thinkers and the medievals do, like Thomas, who explicitly says that each person is numerically identical to the divine essence, this divine substance, yet not numerically identical to one another. Well, you're just not going to be able to have that. You cannot say this distinct center of consciousness is identical to the divine substance. This, this center of consciousness B is identical to it. 
you're you're going to have to deny the law of identity. And I mean, maybe if you could have a weird view of relative identity and try and have it, but I see no reason why anyone wants to do that. This might be the only time relative identity works for them. There's plenty of logicians out there. Peter Van In, who, who rejects this idea of the logic of relative identity, Peter Van Inwagen, one of the philosophers who gave us this model, doesn't buy into it himself. He said in writing, maybe he does now, but at least in the original papers, he was he was explicit. He wasn't committed to it. So I don't think we want to make that move. Um, so you just can't have simplicity. So when we think about how these other models of God, so okay, so you're social trinitarian and you want the eternal relations of origin. Well, because you're a social trinitarian, you already can't be a classical theist. So you got to throw that out. Well, because you're going to be committed to timelessness, you can't be an open theist. You got to throw that out. There's all different kinds of neoclassical theisms. Uh, Ryan Mullins helpfully demarcates this model of God as any model of God that, while preserving God's exhaustive foreknowledge and certain foreknowledge of the future and his aseity, etc., uh, is going to deny one or more of the four classical attributes, that is simplicity, immutability, impassibility, and atempor- or atemporal eternity. So you could deny any of those four and be a neoclassical theist. Well, you can't deny timelessness because you need timelessness for this doctrine. But timelessness entails immutability and impassibility, so you can't deny those. So simplicity you already can't have because of social Trinitarianism, what it requires. So therefore... The only model of God, and this is a very provocative claim, that the only model of God that a social Trinitarian who wants to keep the eternal relations of origin can really work with is going to be a single neoclassical model of God that denies divine simplicity yet affirms divine immutability, impassibility, and timelessness. Who, who are some examples of people who would have that view of neoclassical theism? I don't know any. Okay. I'm just being honest, I don't know of any that do. Every social Trinitarian that I know that wants to maintain the eternal relations of origin are both committed to divine temporalism. Got it. So that would be Richard Swinburne and William Hasker. Yeah. I guess this is another good reason to go ahead and affirm the eternal relations of origin, right? <laughs> you, could. you know, some social Trinitarians might look at this and say, oh, well, there's a good reason for me to reject the eternal relations of origin. And mm-hmm. people who are committed to the eternal relations of origin might say, oh, well, there's a good reason for me to reject social Trinitarianism. So what's All- the alter? What, what do you do if you reject the eternal relations of origin? Does that mean you have to reject, you know, Nicaea and other ecumenical councils? Well, I mean, you're going to be at odds with at least some statements in Nicaea. Like those that say the Son who is eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. There's at least six stanzas in the Nicene Creed. You're probably going to have to. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Um, I know several people who still recite the Creed, and they st- who are social Trinitarians, and who, who deny this doctrine and who pray the Creed because they affirm what the Creed is after, and that is a, Trinit- a truly Trinitarian God where there is a true egalitarian trinity, the persons are truly equal, they in divinity. And um, so because they're after what the Nicene Fathers are after, they just arrive there in a very different way, and their trinity looks a little differently, they will still recite and pray the creed because their intentions are the same in their mind. So that's that's what some do. Um, Some just say, yeah, we just have to dispense with that. That's unfortunate. We wish we didn't have to. But uh, now, it's often worth noting, this paper does not present an argument against the eternal relations of origin, nor does it present an argument for social Trinitarianism. 
The people who reject the eternal relations of origin, they have their own other reasons, such as they don't find timelessness to be uh, a coherent view of God. They think it's inconsistent with what the Bible teaches. They may not. They may have issues. Other issues. They may not. I know several who don't think that this actually protects us from Arianism and subordinationism. That there just is no set of affairs where A is causally prior to B and not greater ontologically speaking than B. Um, there's different concerns. Um, again, that's why I don't. This that would require a whole different paper paper to address all of those concerns. But that's for that's for each of those Trinitarians to to work out in their own mind. Yeah, the way you phrased that made me think of something else. I assume, or I'm thinking, if I remember correctly, that if people use causal language, then sort of like the recourse to defending against any form of subordinationism or Arianism or anything would be to say, well, I affirm divine simplicity, therefore I can say causal all day long, but given divine simplicity, it's impossible for there to be a hierarchical relationship of any sort. Am I right about thinking about that? Uh, yeah, that sounds right to me. Okay. It just came to my mind, so I was thinking about it. Um, I w- you may not want to flesh that argument out too much. You may have to change your mind on some things. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on what version of divine simplicity you want to have. I right. think I right. think there are several models of simplicity that all get at what you could say, call it a mere divine simplicity if you wanted to. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that don't give you all of the the baggage that might come along with it. And maybe the baggage is worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it may, maybe the payoff you get is, is totally worth it. I mean, it, just like timelessness, I'm getting a bunch of stuff for free. So why wouldn't I want that? Free stuff is awesome. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you could. That's Again, that's for each theologian to, to work out. Yeah. I know you're a fan of uh, the Jeffrey Brower model of simplicity. I'm I'm not one over by it, uh, but that's okay. Um, so I, what's what's wrong with the the truth maker model? I don't know what's making I don't know what's making everything true. Hmm. Like we don't like God is this we don't we don't know what the divine like he has this idea that we don't really know what the divine substance is. We have this unknown object that is the that is identical to whatever it is the truth makers is that are making these predications of God true. But we've got a nice little formula, but we don't have any, we don't know what any of the contents that fill it out are. So, so the the worry is sort of like a, I don't know, a darkness or a vagueness of like I just have no idea what it is I'm worshiping anymore. Yeah, is I just right? well, I just don't think we've said anything. Okay. I've said yeah, okay. I'm like I've said, we've given, he's given us a great way to say whatever it is. Here is a great way to say it, but he doesn't tell us what the it is. Mm-hmm. That's my issue. Is that I'm left. All right, so we've got these predications like, you know, God is eternal, right? We got that predication. Well, there's a truth maker for it. We're not going to define what that is, but whatever it is, it's identical to God. But we don't really know what that object is either. That's what we're after with the predications. So yeah. we've got an unknown object that's grounding in the truth and identical, and I guess is the truth maker of these things, but we don't know what that is. So it just seems to me like a very logically sophisticated mystery card. I'll have to think about it some more. I, I've got plans to. So when, when I think about it some more, I'll come back to you and tell you why. I, why I, I, was, I was intrigued by it. And then uh, and then I thought about it. And then, you know, I, I asked some other people who, who are smarter than me, like like Ryan and others. And I was like, hey, what do you think about this? He's like, yeah, sounds nice. Doesn't tell us anything, but it sounds nice. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's that. 
<laughs> so I guess that you know that that brings up a question. As we've been talking about a lot of these classical doctrines and different things, mm-hmm. like what role, what what place is there for things like mystery and deference to a tradition on a p- particular position? Where yeah. do those play in your epistemology? In my personal epistemology, or, or just in in gen- mm-hmm. like let's just think well, of try to think of a mere social trinitarian who's trying to to re- work responsibly in these areas. Like sure. how does how do they think about those sort of aspects to Theological, the theological enterprise. Right. So, well, some are going to want to take the approach of, of the classical, of the, of the classicists themselves, right? They're going to want to take the Augustinian, the Cappadocian. They're going to say, hey, we are given this language in Scripture, but it's not appropriate or reverent for us to really probe beneath these mysteries. Um, I've been reading a lot of Lombard recently, and there's just several places where Lombard says, yes, yeah, so this term may seem vague, and that's because it would be irreverent for of us to go deeper. And maybe that's the case. So it, you're going to have some who, who really think that they are prying into things we are just not supposed to know. We're not supposed to understand. Like as a social Trinitarian, I'll agree. God is beyond our full comprehension. I think he's giving us a lot to think about. I think he's given us a lot about himself to know. And I think God being the author of reason and being the natural source of things like the laws of logic, allows us like those logical entailments of certain things and how they work out. Uh, I think he allows us to use those to arrive at truths about him. But sometimes there just may be, but sometimes people play the mystery card too quickly. And I would just rather hear them say, I don't know. Because sometimes people ask me, hey, what do you do with this? And I'm like, huh, I don't know. Yeah, think about it. And that's okay. That just reminds me, because here's the thing. When I say I don't know, that reminds me of my own finitude and my own limitedness, and that provokes within me a theological humility. And I would be nervous that by playing the mystery card, no one's proven me wrong, and I can say, ah, I haven't, I haven't come up short. It's just a divine mystery. I'm still done excellent work. Maybe I have, but it seems like that could. I'm not saying it necessarily does. That could provoke some kind of arrogance, whereas for me in my own personal life, uh, in my academic writing, I don't like to appeal to mystery personally. Uh, now, in my Sunday school class, when I'm teaching, I'll say, I don't know. And in writing, I'll say, I don't know. Sometimes I'll say, you know, to some extent, things are a mystery. And I think also it's helpful, too, when we talk about Trinitarian models like social Trinitarianism, oftentimes we are not trying to say this is the model. Oftentimes we are, we are looking at the faces of, like, the incoherence challenge to the doctrine and we're looking at other challenges that the idea of the Trinity has, and we're saying, well, here are some plausible models that can make sense of it. We're not saying that these have to be true, but if we can just give you one possible story that can do the work, then that's all that we need. So I I don't know if that's getting around your question, but some people just may want to say there is no place for for mystery. I'm not one of those people. I think there is, but I just think the mystery is there where... I don't know, maybe saying I don't know just is my punt to mystery because I'm saying I don't know. It's a mystery to me currently. Maybe that mystery will get revealed as I continue to work through the problems more and more. Maybe it won't. Yeah. But I don't know. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think the the main idea is that mystery isn't just our uh, punt to say, look, yes, this is totally incoherent, but somehow mysteriously this this is actually coherent. Um, it's it's like saying you know not not p and p yeah they're definitely contradictory they can't they can be true at the same time I can't tell you why it's a mystery well that 
that's kind of like a bad sort of punt to mystery. Yeah. And, and, and this is really important for us to note. None of the church fathers would have ever said that God like does the contradictory things. Like, like no, no, no Augustine, not Aquinas, no, but none of them would have ever said God can make a square circle or create a married bachelor. Like they, none of them would have said those things. Well, and had J.C. Bill been around, maybe they would have. I think he would have been one of those people that threw rocks at. <laughs> but there's true contradictions. I mean, and I don't say that as a slack against J.C. Bill. Like he could, like I, I, I could not begin to outlogic that guy. The guy is brilliant. He is. I don't know. It just seems so obvious because there seem to be even places in Scripture where the apostles and the and the and the New Testament authors are like, well, hey, we want to avoid these things. And so that's so maybe, I don't know, maybe my intuition is, well, there seems to be now we're going against something that the scripture authors would have gone against too. Yeah. Well, man, this has been helpful. So I appreciate you taking us uh, through this paper. I will link to this as well as anything else. Andrew, remind me, do you have a website? Uh, I did once upon a time, but not anymore. Okay. Um, well, you can, I, we, we can find a, you where? I have an account on X. Um which is so funny to me as an analytic thinker because X is always the thing. Like, if X is this, I'm like, so now I'm like, well, I have an account on X. What does X stand for? So I have an account on this variable, <laughs> but uh, I have there, but I don't check it that much anymore. Um, I remove social media from my cellular device and I just access it through my computer, so I'm not on there that much. But I do provide updates about publications on my Facebook page, on my Twitter page. Uh, I have a faculty page at Bruton Parker College. And I have an academia page where I do uh, maybe or maybe not upload some of my published papers there. Excellent. Well, thanks, Andrew. This has been great. Uh, Do check out all the material there and keep up to date on the latest happenings over with um, all the other locations that you can go. I still don't want to call it X. I'll call it Twitter. Uh, I guess I'm old fashioned there in that sense. And Andrew has since significantly upgraded his background since we last recorded so i know you guys can't watch this but this it's a very very well done bookshelf and it looks very nice for what it's worth my me and my father-in-law and a couple of friends we built these ourselves well that is quite impressive so they look very very good um anybody who records in front of a a bookshelf you just know immediately your intelligence quota has jumped at least three points (laughs) so thanks andrew again this has been great we we appreciate you taking the time and as always you guys uh, thanks for listening and tuning in to the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet and we'll talk to you guys soon everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.